Hi, my name is Xavier Oshinol, and in this episode of RHH on Campus, I speak with Donna Alexander, a social worker, mental health clinician, consultant, facilitator, and advocate. Over the past 18 plus years, she worked as a social worker for the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in their substance abuse program for African Canadian and Caribbean youth, or SAPACY. This program assists African and Caribbean Canadian youth aged 25 and younger who deal with substance abuse and mental health issues. Today, Donna Alexander and I will discuss Black mental health and its correlation to substance abuse. So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Before we begin, I would like to talk about SAPACY for a little bit. The program nearly collapsed due to a lack of funding, support, and resources a few years ago. However, in 2021, the Ontario government invested $2.9 million to enhance and expand SAPACY at CAMH, as well as seven new satellite locations across Ontario. This expanded program will significantly improve the resources that members of the Black community need who are struggling with substance abuse and mental health concerns. Now, SAPSI is thriving as a program. The Afrocentric and racial trauma-informed care they provide is something that the Black community needs to gain trust within Canadian healthcare. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Could you give us a quick overview of what SAPSI is, uh, what your role is with SAPSI? Okay, so SAPSI is an ethno-specific program for concurrent disorders program for Black youth. And so we serve clients 13 to 24, although we do have some flexibility up to 29. So basically, we, we, we serve clients that are substance dependent or they're experiencing mental health issues. Um, so that's basically it. We're clinical service. We're outpatient clinical services, service at CAMH. Are mental health and substance use issues more noticeable in young adults or teenagers? Yes, it is. Because what we what we see is the age of onset for most mental illnesses around adolescence, teenage years. And I think a lot of people, if they're going to experience a mental health issue, if they're going to be diagnosed with a mental illness, it will be during adolescence. And so the older we get, a lot of times our, our likelihood of, of um, developing a mental illness actually decreases. So this is why, you, you, you know, we see historically a lot of young people that are being diagnosed or their, their mental health is compromised. And there, there are different factors for that. But most of the time, you know, if, it, if, if mental illness is going to show up, it will be, you know, like late teenage, 18, 19, 20, will be about that time. Would you say this is something connected to like growth hormones, um, for example? We're not sure. I mean, you know, genetics have a, you know, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that genetic environmental factor have a, have a lot to do with it, right? Um, but most of the time, this is what we're seeing, yes. You know, hitting puberty, I feel like, because I know from example from someone in my family how they they had a, a big mental health issue because of the way their body was functioning, and I just found that interesting because I'd never seen that before. So, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, if we're going to talk um, specifically about black youth, I mean, you know, when we talk about like threats to mental health, right? For black youth, there's so many threats to to mental health, especially right. Yeah. yeah, would you like to, you know, talk about some of those? Yes. So so historically in the community, in terms of threats, right, to, to, to black mental yeah. health, I mean, when you look at trauma, vicarious trauma, like we're a community that, that, that are high risk for trauma. I mean, historically in the mm-hmm. black community, you know, we had disproportionate gun violence. We had disproportionate um, 
homicides, right? We all know this about the community. And then late, later, you know, then it became where we lost our protective factor against suicide. So then we had, we were at increased risk of suicide. And I think all of this, when you look at the state of black mental health, this is bound to affect us, right? When we have a community mm-hmm. um, that that is dealt disproportionately with all of these things, then it's bound to affect our mental health collectively, whether it's our brothers right. or our sisters or our grandparents or our parents, it affects us, right? And so that's, that's the situation we have right now in the black community. Right. And like, I would say, would you say that it's kind of directly connected to, um, to, to the pandemic of recent times? So has, you know, mental health issues increased more because of the, because of the pandemic? Absolutely. So here we have a community that has historically been disadvantaged, right? So we had all Mm -hmm. of these problems, all of these issues pre-pandemic. But what the the pandemic in a lot of ways was actually the straw that broke the camel's back. (laughs) really because what the what the pandemic did was you had a general population that they experienced uh, the 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 universal problems right the isolation the social isolation the loneliness all of these things right but when you look specifically at the black community you know covid related anxiety there was there were some things that universally we all experienced right but when you look specifically yeah. at the black community, what we saw was that the, 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 the pandemic disproportionately impacted the community, right? In every single mm-hmm. indicator, whether we're talking about deaths, hospitalization, housing, homelessness, you know, food insecurity, familial breakdown, lack of access, marginalization, all of these things, right? So we, we had all of these things. Right. You know, when you look at the social determinants of health, the poverty was there pre-pandemic, you know, social exclusion, marginalization, all of those things were there pre-pandemic. But what the pandemic did was that it made it so much worse. Right. right. Especially when it, when, it, when you look at employment. Like there were so many black people that were unemployed. In, in some families, there were two people. In mom, mom was not working. Dad was not working. Right. And so mm-hmm. it, it just, it, in terms of substance abuse went up, you know, like all of those things disproportionately impacted the black community. You know, it almost feels like it has not been addressed mm-hmm. enough mm-hmm. Uh, recently. Why, why, why would you say that that's the case? Because basically for two years, there was no socialization whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. There was no, like people didn't have as much interaction because of a pandemic, but I feel like this issue has been swept under the rug and... Would you like to, you know, talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I think, you know, so far there have been programs. I know Public mm-hmm. Health Canada, they've funded different programs that, that were specifically, the programs and services that was specifically designed to meet the gaps. And these fund, the, some of these fundings were like to the Black community, like to really bridge a gap in terms of services, in terms of the determinants yeah. of health. Are they enough? You know, we'll never, yeah. of course not, right? Because then we, there was such a huge gap to make up, right? Right. So, yeah, but I think, you know, I think even when you talk about, and, and the other thing is that we're talking about is that the pandemic, at the end of the pandemic brought different, different challenges, right? So as a result of racism, you know, because that also impacted our mental health, right? Anti-Black racism, all of these things impacted our mental health. So now people were away. They may not have been working or they may be working from home. So they, they, they got a relief, a respite from racism. Now they're thrown back into these 
environments where they have to deal with racial micro and microaggressions mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, like we, but I don't, I think there's such a rush to get back to normalcy. And so vulnerable communities like the Black community, I think have, have been overlooked, right? Because, you know, it's like everybody just want to, I think for a lot of people, they just want to get forget about the pandemic well, and yeah, just move on. Yeah, but you can't do that. And we're not really thinking about the more vulnerable people among us that are still struggling as a result yeah. of the pandemic. Uh, is it... Is it healthy to forget? I don't think, I mean, I would say it's not, but what do you think? Is, yeah, is it like healthy to, to forget? Because, I mean, it was a whole two years, you know? I feel like it's hard, for me, it's hard to forget that I was really sitting in my room 24-7, mm-hmm. you know, constantly. Mm-hmm. So, um, what do you think? I think, I think when you, it depends, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, this is why those of us that are mental health practitioners, we recognize that the pandemic, end of the pandemic, Certainly took a while for people to adjust, Mm -hmm. you know, to to the slower pace, right? But it's now taken, in terms of the the toll on our mental health, our social skills of a trophy, like... You know, it, it for for some of us, we can no longer take that that stimulation that we did yeah. pre-pandemic. So some of us need a slow time to to mm-hmm. get back, right? And and so you know, I I think we have to give ourselves the opportunity to do so. And this is why I say some of us are in a rush to get back to 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 the way it was before. But the way it was before wasn't necessarily a good thing because it really impacted our mental health. And so the thing is, how do we get mm-hmm. a balance, right? How do we not go from that because the life that some of us lived pre-pandemic was really not sustainable because it really impacted our mental health you know but just being at home socially isolated that was not good for mental health either and so how do each of us find a balance a good balance in between that's the issue what are some good ways to find that balance or i mean i know it's probably a case by case but like you know some general things that maybe people can can use I think, you know, we have to to be intentional about the level of support Mm -hmm. that we need and and how much stimulation we can take, right? We have to be intentional about, like, how much we see people and how much we expose ourselves to large groups of people. And always, what I always, we have to keep in mind that our mental health is the most important thing in life, right? And so each of us have to to figure out in terms of what we need in order to sustain Mm -hmm. our mental health. And, and how to prioritize our mental health. And so even if we're we're out at a gathering and we find ourselves getting overwhelmed or anxious, we have to know when to leave. So we, you know, we we don't have to stay. We we can choose to 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 socialize, but in much smaller doses, much not for for such prolonged periods of time. Because a lot of for for a lot of people now, that's creating some right. anxiety. Now, tracking back a little bit to, you know, substance abuse. Mm-hmm. So would you say that mental health mm-hmm. problems are more noticeable because of substance abuse or other issues? And follow up to that is, are, is substance abuse something that follows because of mental health issues? So, so, so here's the thing. And for years, you know, we talk about this, right? I think now we're seeing, and I, I, I touched briefly mm-hmm. on this before, mental health and substance use, they're so intimately linked, yeah. right? And this is why, this is why we always, when we're talking about mental health, when we're planning service for for people, for people, right? We always, in terms of service planning, service delivery, we always look at both of them, right? I think years ago there was this notion that okay, you treat the the, the addiction 
first and then you treat the mental illness. And and yes, there's sometimes with mental illness where we, we don't really know what it is we're dealing with and until we remove the substances, right? So there could be some mental health issues there, but until we until people are abstinent. And that's why sometimes the first thing you do when you're admitted is that they do a drug screen to see what drugs Mm-hmm. they're dealing with, right? But I think overall, the, both of them are so linked. And this is why, for example, you have the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, because it's useful to treat both of them. Right. Because a lot of times where one exists, yeah. the other will exist, right? And so you will have, for example, you will have certain substances that can cause psychosis, for example. And then a lot of times, if, if, if you have someone that's experienced psychosis, well, they find out if they use certain drugs, then for then the drugs will, will maybe mute the auditory hallucinations, right? But so, and then people that, that if, you're, if, if you're feeling down, you know, you may use a mood-altering substance and it makes you, you know, it makes you a lot more social. It gives you confidence, right? So this is why they're so linked. And this is why it's sort of, it's very difficult to, you know, to separate them. For me, I'm a concurrent yeah. disorder specialist. So my, my specialization is concurrent disorders. I've never really been been trained to look at them different different because I know where one exists, chances are the other will exist. Right. So yeah, it's like another like personal experience from someone close to my family, you know, a bit of a depression. And their way to I guess counter that was through substance abuse and like almost nearly overdosing, right? Which is scary. And this is even something like it's it's scary because you're you know you're you're close to them. So I'm just wondering is like are people do people come in to Sapsi that are I guess I want to say victim is like the the best word, but like you know coming in to kind of talk to people about their own experience with other people and you know because I know that that even causes other people some mental health issues. Yeah. So the whole and right. this is why I I touch briefly on before right, when I talk about when you, when you say the state of mental health, this is why the state of mental health right now I would say is in the communities a mental health crisis, right? Because we can't see all of these things and it doesn't happen, right? And so when we talk about it, we talk about secondary trauma, we talk about vicarious trauma. And so, yes, a lot of the work that we do is with family members, right? Because family members, they're traumatized. I mean, we have a family group and the main reason for the family group is really to provide support to family. And when we say family, that's, devi- that, that's defined very broadly, of course, right? Because from our, in our, from an Afrocentric point of view, yes, it's mother, but it's, it's not only parents. It could be brother, sister, grandparents, auntie, teachers, coaches, whoever that's involved in that person's life that love them, then they're family. Because this is the way we do it, right? And so a lot of the times we deal with, with families that are experiencing secondary trauma. And secondary trauma, it, you know, it's when something doesn't happen to you, but you see it happens to someone else, right? Yeah. You have all these different forms of trauma that people are, are living with. Are, you know, they're, they have to, to, to live with and try to manage. And so, yes, we do a lot of work with, with extended family members. Awesome. Awesome. That's good to hear. Yeah. And is there any advice for like support systems for like these families, like places they can go to speak about these things, uh, you know, in, in addition? Yeah. To so there, there are other agencies out there. Like I, I think one of the things is that fortunately, after many years of advocacy, Sapisi was able to secure funding in November of 20, awesome. 2021. And awesome. so now the program is provincial wide. Mm-hmm. So so before it was one single location at CAMH. So, so yeah. as a result of the funding, the, the program received, 
you know, now it's extended. So now SAPIS is a provincial-wide program. So there's a satellite location in Ottawa. There's one in Windsor. There's one in Hamilton. There's one in Brampton. And there, there are three satellite locations in the greater Toronto area. So one is at Taibu Community Health Centre. The other one is at CAFCAN, which is Caribbean African Social Services. And the other one is also in the West End, which is at Wreckdale Community Health Centre. And so if families are in any of those areas, then they can access they can access family support as well. So there are groups for family. There, there are like a young men's group. There's a group for women. There, there are a group for families. And even if families are not even in the greater Toronto area, then the, the right now, as a result of the pandemic, we moved everything online. So right now, a family member could be in Ottawa and they could still log on to the support group in Toronto. So right mm-hmm. now, we as of next week, as of April 7th, for example, we have a group for family members that, that will be every... Wednesdays for the month of April, from from six in the in the evening until eight in the in the evenings, and families from from where and and the greatest the great thing is that family don't have to have a, a client in the service. So if yeah. you're a family member, you're black, and you're 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 you know you're supporting someone, whether or not they're they're actual client of CAMH or a client of Sapisi, they can log on and and and, and be supported and join the family group. Awesome power of yeah. uh, of of online nowadays, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I, I did. You know, going through the pandemic, having Zoom fatigue. You know, I'm I'm so glad now. I only have to go to Zoom one time a week. You know, just <laughs> it, it's it's so much better now. If you notice anyone around you that is struggling, what would be some good scenarios that you can help them? into the right direction? Um, I think first, first of all, you have to speak to them, right? So you have to access what I would call a circle of support. And a circle of support is just that, right? It's family members, people that love yeah. that love them and care about them. But I, I, I think too, it has to be a series of very small conversations. I think a lot, for, for a long time, we've been led to believe, you know what, we have one conversation with the person and that's it. But I would suggest to you that that, that's not really useful, right? I think what we want to do is to have a series of conversation with the person because it might be overwhelming. This one conversation might be overwhelming and the person might feel that they're being judged. And so what I, when I'm coaching families and how to talk to, to someone, I say to them, you know, you know, you mentioned something, you back off. Yeah. It's like a play, right? You say, you know what? I love you so much. I'm concerned about you. There's something, you know, like I'm hoping we'll talk about. But just keep in mind that, you know, whatever happens, I love you, I care about you, you know. And then you may say to them something you've, you've, you've really observed. Like you've noticed, you know, you know, well, I, I noticed that this or this is that. I noticed maybe that you, you're drinking too much or you're not able to get out of bed. You're, you're not showering, you know, you're not eating as much, whatever you've, you've actually seen. Right. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, this is not normal for you. And I'm just really concerned, like, what's going on? And then depending on what they say, then you may back off again and you may come back again. But the intention is always to, to lead with, I love you, I care about you, you know, and to, all, to, to also personalize it. Like if you, you know, and to say, you know, what, well, we all feel this mm-hmm. way and also to normalize it. Right. Because the thing is, I always say that when I talk to people, I always want to say to them, you know, just as, just as we get physically sick, right, we also get mentally sick. And so it's a part of life. It's unavoidable. 
you, it's unavoidable, you know, like we get sick. And so, and so I, I liken it to, to that and I make comparisons in that, in that way, right? So it's very normal, you know, and that's the language that I use because, you know, as a community, and I, I say that because as a community, we're still dealing with stigma. We're still dealing with, dealing with a lot of stigma when it comes to mental illness, right? And so we want to normalize it as much as possible. We, we want to, you know, we want to be there to support people. And the, the main thing is that when we speak to them, we don't want them to feel like we're attacking them or we're judging them or we're, we're communicating in such a way that would suggest that they're to be blamed. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, I had a great talk with Gregory Leslie about some very similar things. And he was mentioning about, like, you know, using normal language to speak to people, not like kind of exaggerating things in a sense. Because, you know, when you when you when you say something, there's one little thing I feel like, could you know, can set off like what you were saying, like one little thing kind of set off a, a cascade of more of more issues. So, you know, it's. I feel like it's, it feels like it might be a little bit difficult for, for some, you know, to, to share with, with others now. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, it's really, it's not easy to talk about mental health issues. It's, it's really not. It, it really, it really isn't from my perspective. It, it really, it really was not. And for me, my mom, my mom was, is uh, somebody I, I talked to a lot, which is great. You know, you're always having somebody there. You know, try to try to use somebody that I guess that's close to you that you can, you know, really really talk to. I think that's my advice for for certain people because, you know, it, it helps it helps in the long run. And when I I would say the other thing is that when we talk to, when I talk to people or I encourage people I coach people to speak to someone I always say to them like offer to be there, right? And if 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 you can't be there, then you offer someone else. Let's say, you know what, I know this is scary for you. I know like you probably don't want to do this. And so how about, it's sort of like a re, what I would call a, a, a partner in the recovery journey, in the treatment and recovery journey, right? So I always, I'm saying to whoever is designated in the family to have that discussion with the person, I always say, you know what, don't just say to the person, you know, like there's a problem, you have a problem or kind of thing right but say I, mean, I love you I'm concerned about you this is these are my concerns and and the next thing was offer be clear in the level of support you're able to, to to provide to them and if you you know or if you're not able to do that you designate someone to say you know what I know this is really scary for you I I, I, I this is terrifying I know this person or I will 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 be your 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 person so to go to appointments with them because sometimes when you're in that framework you really need someone to accompany you to appointments so that things that you may miss they can hear right? And when and and if if something happens and you lose capacity, then there's always that person that can be a substitute decision maker that can step in and make good decisions on your behalf, right? That can that can navigate the system for you because the mental health system right now is so fragmented. So a lot of times you need that that person will need someone there as an advocate to make to ensure that if if the situation changes, if they lose capacity, if they get really sick, that someone is there to look out for them. Right. So it's not just, oh, you have the talk and you leave the person alone. Right. It goes yeah, beyond that. Right. Now, you say saying that the mental health system is fragmented does not sound does not bode well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, it's fragmented. And, and so most of the, the clients that we see at Sapathy are people that have been trying to navigate the system for years. 
but the system years. is so for years like literally wow. for literally for years like three four five years oh my god like I, you know like last year was it last summer yeah last summer i you know i saw a family and um a young man um that was experiencing psychosis and i remember i remember when i spoke to the father i mean after meeting him 10 minutes i knew that he was not well uh-huh. And I, when I was speaking to his father, I said to his father, oh, my God, like, how long have you been like this? You realize he's very sick. And the father said about three years. And I said, three years? And and then the father said, yes. And he was so distraught. And I don't know who gave him my number. He just called me out of nowhere. And he said, you know, my son is sick. I need to speak to you. And I said to him, you wanted to come that day. And I said, no, I can't see you today. I'm back to back, but come the other day. And the other day was there. And when he told me that that, that young man has been living like that for three years. But I said to him, I said, you really? he said, yes, I know he was sick. But he said, I didn't know what to do. I know I should call, uh, you know, people keep telling me to call the police. But he said, I didn't have the heart to call the police. Right. But and so this is why this young man was sick for so long until he he wasn't eating. He stopped eating because he was so paranoid. He thought someone was trying to poison him. So he literally was wasting away. Right. Because I remember saying to the psychiatrist when I spoke to her, I said, oh, I said, how soon can I get an appointment? She said three weeks. I said, honestly, I don't even know if he's going to last three weeks. I told her. But I remember when she saw him, you know, she, she called me and she texted me right away when I called her back. She said, you know, Donna, like, ethically, I cannot let him go back home. Like she said, ethically, I cannot let him leave today. She said, he may never speak to me again, but I have to, ta- I, I've, I, I have to walk him over to the ER now. I have to, to tell him we're going to take blood, but I literally have to get him admitted. And that's what she, and, and you know, after five weeks admission, he was back to, he was well, he was eating again. And I remember every time I went on the unit and I saw his father, the moment his father would see me, he would start crying. Like he was, he was so happy that his son got treatment. But the pathways to care is very traumatic. It's, it's, you know, it's, you know, especially if you're experiencing mental health issues and then the police is called, especially if you're a young black man, it's, it's extremely traumatic. Yeah, young black men and the relationship with the police is just not, it's not there. And I know this, that's why there's, it's a huge fear because trying to go into the police with something like this could, could always be more detrimental than, than good. Right. Yeah. So that's why I talk about the fragmentation that exists in the system. Right. It, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's not easy. Like, and, and even for me, like, and even for other professional people that have worked in the system for like 20 years. And i sometimes think if it's so difficult for us, I can't imagine what the regular person off the street, I can't imagine, no. you know, their experience, right? Mm-hmm. Because some is because it can be very traumatic, you know, navigating withdrawal management services, you know, getting admitted, all of these things. It's not easy for families. No, it really isn't. I think that is all the time we have. So I would like to appreciate you coming today, Donna. It was a great talking to you and i appreciate the you know the words of wisdom that you shared and and the stories that you shared so thank you very much you're welcome it was a pleasure thank you everyone for tuning in to this week's episode of rhh on campus this concludes this two-part series on black mental health before we end today i would like to say how good we are in the black community to have such an incredible program like sapacy that aims to bridge the gaps in the fragmented system we live in If you or someone you know is a black youth under the age of 25 and is struggling with substance abuse or mental health issues, 
please contact Sapsi by going to their website at camh.ca or by calling them at 416-535-8501, extension 30655. Thank you again for tuning in.